0: to the daily horror habit podcast i'm your host jay krieger bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers and as always i hope you enjoy this week i'm joined once again by a friend of the show bernie to chat about lars von trier's latest controversial film the house the jack built which is currently streaming on showtime hey bernie how's it going going great man how about yourself not too bad not too bad I'm excited to uh, to talk about this movie because it's definitely one that you need some time to gestate after yep. watching it I we originally were scheduled to like watch it and then the next day review it and I realized I definitely needed a couple of days to kind of just like unpack what I had just seen yeah. uh, and I'd actually seen this before I'd seen this last year mm-hmm. um, but it was one of those movies that kind of it it's so aggressive from the start. And it doesn't let up that it was one of those movies that I kind of got caught up in that. And I Mm. definitely wanted to revisit it, but I needed a good chunk of time before actually getting to do that. So I appreciate you uh, bringing this one to the
1: table to talk about. No, of course. I mean, you know, I'm I'm in a similar boat. I had to watch it twice just so I could kind of fully comprehend it because it just takes so many twists and turns that you really, I think, have to you know go through it once to just really get an understanding of what lars was trying to really portray with this mm-hmm. and, and there's like different little nuances that matt dylan brings to the table in this that you know he's just such a phenomenal actor it's just you know it's really really interesting to kind of see how he takes the trajectory of the character into the serial killer that he eventually becomes
0: yeah so the house that jack built uh for those who don't know we meet jack played by matt Dillon, who's a failed architect in vicious serial killer That's recounting five different incidents or murders he's committed to a mysterious figure named Verge, who's played by Bruno Ganz. And uh, we follow Jack and Verge's conversation, which narrates these incidents as they play out for the audience and reveal Jack's sociopathic tendencies and spiraling descent into new levels of violent depravity. So right off the bat, once you finish the film, what is your first kind of gut reaction to the movie?
1: Jesus Christ! Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> pretty much that. Ha- that pretty much has to be the only reaction. Otherwise, uh, they should have made the movie about yourself.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think when you start the movie off right, and he's he's driving in a car, he sees a woman on the side of the road. She asks for help. That's I don't know. It's it's a different kind of uh, introduction. I feel like to a serial killer because y- typically you kind of see serial killers already in the midst of their killing, mm-hmm. where that kind of gives you that backstory of, yeah, he's kind of a little bit of a weakling. He doesn't really stand up for himself in certain circumstances, right, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things, I actually didn't realize that that first lady was Uma Thurman.
0: Yeah, it's Uma Thurman.
1: Which, uh, yeah, I mean, again, great actress on her part, but, um, you know, her, him taking her to the body shop to to get, I forget what the tool was that she was getting the Jack, there we go. Ironic, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, sh- he does that. And then on the way back, she just. That was the only kill that I was kind of satisfied that he actually did it. Just because she was just so mean for no reason. <laughs> I forget what the exact term was. She called him like a wuss or she. Yeah, because you know-
0: she, she has this whole. When her character gets in the car, she's like, oh, that was a mistake. And he's like, what? What was the mistake? And she goes in this whole thing where he kind of, she says he looks like a serial killer, Mm -hmm. but then she is so abusive to this complete stranger. And she's like, I mean, you couldn't really be a serial killer because you're such a wuss. Like you don't have it in you or something like that. And that's when he picks up the Jack and just bashes her in the face with it.
1: (laughs) Which Uh, I mean, again, I'm usually on the side of the victims, but that did feel like (laughs) weird and satisfying to see that happen. Um, it, again, it, rolls off kind of a series of very unfortunate incidents for people after that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, just that start, I think it gives you an understanding of like, okay, this is a character that obviously has very serious kind of social issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that tends to be something that we see in serial killers. You know, one of the reasons that they become that. Um, So I I think it just gave us a really good early example of like what to expect through the rest of the film.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I think is really interesting is that, sometimes they tend to romanticize serial killers in these types of movies where they're able to kind of just like smile and charm their way through certain conversations and whatnot to get close to their victims. Whereas Matt Dillon is like physically uncomfortable being in her, another person's presence to the point that he doesn't even want to converse with her. He doesn't even want to stop with her. Like he wouldn't have stopped for her if she hadn't been in the middle of the road when she stands out or she runs out into the middle of the road. Um, One thing that I've really picked up on the second time watching the movie that I didn't the first time was is that there's no morally competent figure kind of leading us through the movie. Like it's very much we're following the serial killer that he lacks empathy. He lacks a moral core. Right. And then we're not seeing the other side of anything. Like generally in these types of movies, we're seeing the perspective of the detective or we're Mm -hmm. jumping between the serial killer's uh, perspective and a detective who's hunting him. But right. in this, we're kind of just in the in the filth with uh, Jack, as it were.
1: Right, right. I mean, again, as you kind of go more, you know, deeper into this movie, obviously every victim has a little bit of a backstory that we get. Maybe Sans like the third person, which we see like, you know, five minutes of essentially. Mm-hmm. But all of them have kind of character flaws that enable him to do certain things, right? To, to go after them in a certain way. Like the second victim that he goes after, when he comes in and he approaches her saying that he's a cop and mm-hmm. you know, I think she was at Albertsons or something like that, and he starts questioning her about that, she asks for a badge and mm-hmm. he flips instantly to saying, I'm actually an insurance agent or you know claims insurance person mm-hmm. and you know, I'd love to help you out. At that point, any normal person would be like, yeah, buddy, yeah, yeah, you could talk to the front of my door here. Right. Uh, she continues to engage it because she thinks, okay, well, I can make some money off this. Yeah. Not kind of sensing the danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting how Lars, uh, what was the gentleman's name? Lars,
0: Lars von Trier. L- Lars
1: von Trier. V- Lars von Trier. Um, it's interesting how he kind of built that up because, again, you obviously feel bad for the, the victims in this, but there's also a sense of like, what are you guys doing? You, you should have, you know, like it's at least in that specific, one, mm-hmm. you should have known kind of where this could be going.
0: Yeah. So I think that scene is a really great instance where he's pretending to be a cop and then he's so awkward. He can't even lie properly almost, but he is perceptive. So he starts picking things out from her, uh, what he can see through her doorway to like form a story or a narrative to get access to her house. Mm-hmm. But at the same time he uses each of the incidents to create a new identity for himself almost like there's one later on where he's dating a woman that has two kids and he goes down to this whole, he has this narration with verge talking about like having a family and all these things. But each incident is just an excuse for him to try to live out a life or try to form some sort of identity because his character has no identity at the core. Like that's what the first time I watched this movie, the like visceral repugnant violence was the only thing I could focus on. Yeah, but the on a rewatch, like this is very much like a dark comedy, yeah. in a lot of ways. In that, like he is an utter failure, and the only thing he can find success in is like killing people. Like, mm-hmm. he, and his character is presented throughout as being this like super informed person who uh, waxes poetics on like architecture. He gives basically many dissertations to verge about architecture, wine, yeah. musicians, all these things, and yet he can't apply any of these things. Mm-hmm. So he's just like he touches upon so many different personalities and so many different interests. And yet the, the flaw, I wouldn't even call it tragic because he's a scumbag, but the flaw in his character is that he can't apply any of this, anything that merits anything worthy of a life, basically.
1: Right. Right. I mean, you know, uh, again kind of when you go through that film again and you look at like little nuances through the film i didn't even realize it at the beginning um and i kind of i feel silly to not have seen this but um he goes into that freezer the first time and he starts talking about like the pizzas that he has in there mm-hmm. and how he bought these off of i forget what the gentleman's name was but he's like oh you got a great deal and then yeah. he won pizza and then the rest you know there's 300 of them just sitting in there right and that Just goes.
0: They taste the
1: like shit, right? Yeah. So it's like you're gonna buy all that, and you're not even gonna test it out. You're not gonna right. have a device or something. So <laughs> you know, I think to your point, he comes off. I forget if it's OCD he has or yeah, it's OCD. Off, but, um, you know, again, you come to this thinking, okay, well, he has some sort of a plan, and you know, he's very meticulous in certain aspects. But again, he's he really is a failure at everything that he's done before this, and the more he progresses the less his OCD is, I guess, affecting him. So yeah. the more mistakes that he's ending up making, again, thus creating that cycle that even in trying to be a serial killer, he's successful in terms of killing people, but obviously not in the sense of getting away with that crime scot-free.
0: Right, yeah, and I think that that you mentioned the OCD, that speaks to this movie really being like as disgusting as the violence is and whatnot. It's hilarious that there's that scene where he finally convinces that woman on the porch to let him into her house. Mm-hmm. He kills her, which he fucks up. Like he yeah. tries to choke her and he doesn't even know how long you have to choke somebody for. So he has to choke her twice. Mm-hmm. And then he's still not sure if he killed her. So he has to stab her after that. And it's like, dude, you're supposed to be the serial killer. Like, why do you not know these most basic, like parts of your, tr- your uh, craft and whatnot? But, right. uh, but then he, What I was just going to say that then he gets in the car and he's about to leave. And he starts having this OCD flashback of like all of this blood that he supposedly missed in parts of the house where there would never be blood, especially mm-hmm. since he stabs her in the chest. Mm-hmm. And then there's a uh, there's a cut to him, like looking behind a picture frame and there's blood all over the wall. And it's like there's never be blood there. But his OCD makes him go in and out of the house like four or five times, even though he hears a cop siren in the distance coming to get him.
1: Right. Right. I mean, one of the things I was. I was weirdly fascinated I guess would be he tries to give her some sort of I think he mentioned it was chamomile tea and I know I know he dropped something in there I wasn't sure what exactly it was, it was but a donut Oh it was a donut okay yeah. that's interesting but I just I was watching that and again it went from him being you know again obviously this guy is crazy but mm-hmm. it went from him trying to kill her to somehow trying to help her Mm -hmm. He puts a pillow under her head, he gives her some tea, and you're just like, again, that's where I think a lot of the confusion, I think, or not a confusion, but questioning of, like, what exactly we're seeing starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. Uh, What part of this movie, if any, did you think that, uh, what is the gentleman's name, Merge? Verge. Oh, Verge, excuse me. Did you ever think that he was, like, he had multiple personality syndrome and he was talking to himself?
0: You know, so the movie opens and it's all black
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it's Matt Dillon asking Bruno Gans, who plays Verge, like, he's asking him if there are rules, and I th- I love that. I mean, it's partly because Matt Dillon has such an awesome voice, but just like the movie opens so just black. It opens black. You don't know what's going on. There's zero context, and he's asking, and all you hear is water, and then you hear him ask like the rules, like, I figured there would be rules along the way, and then you find out that He's talking to this person. They're going on some kind of journey. So I assume that he was dead and that he was going to hell basically. Mm -hmm. And like Verge is the ferryman essentially.
1: Ah, okay. Um, We can kind of touch that a little bit later. Get to that fifth part of the, the movie. But like out of all of the kills, what would you say was the one that kind of startled you the most?
0: So I would say the first time I watched it, it was definitely the one where, it's I believe the third or fourth incident when he's dating the woman, he's basically trying out this personality where he wants to have a family. It's again, this, an incident is just a way for him to obviously the end is always killing somebody, but it's him experimenting and trying to find a core essentially, which he lacks. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that one, because it involves him dating a woman has children and they go, he gives this huge meta, uh, this huge monologue about hunting and the importance of firearms and like culling the herd and all of these things yeah. and talking about how you have to respect weapons. And then it snaps to him sniping and the kids, picking off the kids and the wife one by one. And it's obviously horrifying and graphic. And especially um, if you watch the director's cut, like it's all the movie's only an extra minute uh, long, but mm-hmm. those 60 seconds add up in terms of just like making the gore longer, those moments, a lot more graphic. Um, mm-hmm. Which is rough still to watch. Mm-hmm. So initially, that was what stood out to me because it's like, yeah, it's kids getting killed, which is super fucked up and in more graphic detail than you see in most films. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on a rewatch, it would be the one where he's dating another woman, Riley Cano, uh, mm-hmm. in the apartment building, yep. and just the way that he treats her, yeah, is like he's just being this misogynistic piece of shit and saying like, you're so dumb and all of these things, and that on a rewatch is the most frightening part. Cause that's the most realistic part of the movie.
1: Yeah. Very like, much.
0: The idea, like the violence on a rewatch is a little, is more comical because it's so over the top and it's so ridiculous right. and it's not as shocking anymore. Cause it's a rewatch. But with that, like the dialogue and being so abusive to her verbally and obviously later physically abusive, but it's like that is such a realistic portrayal of, people that are actually out there in the world in probably vast numbers, that just like that belittling of her was so disturbing to me. And Matt Dillon overall does such a phenomenal job that that scene really like fucked me up in a way that even Matt Dillon talks about in an interview, he said that that was the most difficult part of the movie for him to film because he's supposed to have no empathy, show no empathy. And this woman is acting all terrified. And it's like, it's a very awkward dynamic to be having.
1: Yes, very so much so. Like, yeah, like there were specific outcuts um, where he's like looking at a mirror and he's mm-hmm. trying to tell himself like smile. Yeah, and it reminded me of like the Joker a little bit, mm-hmm. where just you know, it's someone that's so completely out of the norm that they're trying to be somewhat normal. Yeah. Um, and you know, did you, I, no- did you notice those pictures
0: were people that he'd killed. Say it one more time. The pictures that he had around the mirror of all the different um, expressions were all people that he'd killed.
1: I actually did not notice that. No, I'm yeah. going to have another look at that. Um, it, again, there's just so many, like, small little Easter eggs throughout it, right? Um, but it's, it's funny you mentioned in that order of, like, you know, what you thought at first, uh, Mm -hmm. first watch, what was the kind of scariest to kill or the weirdest one, Mm -hmm. and following up with the one, I think that girl's name was Simple, he called her. Uh, So, yeah, Um, the the one that he kills the woman with the family, Mm -hmm. I think that that was one of the freakiest parts, just because there's a moment, right, where he's killed both of the kids, Mm -hmm. and they're kind of like... Propped up on like sticks or something like that, right? Or in some sort of. Oh, a in chair. the freezer? Uh, no, no, no. It, when they're having the picnic.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And yeah.
1: He's like, I think Timmy's hungry, you know, give him a, th- right. like a pie or something like mm. that. And this poor woman is just shaking in fear. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm sure she's in complete and utter shock of what just yeah. happened. Yeah. You know, so, you know, sh- her just slowly, and she did a phenomenal job acting. Mm way um but her just slowly trying to like move this spoon to her dead kid's face yeah. and that damon's like you know he just has this like weird expression of like happiness while that's going on or satisfaction you know mm-hmm. um that kill was just it was just so eerie but I, again when you rewatch it and then you go into how he kills that woman in the apartment complex where she starts screaming at the top of her lungs and he's screaming help and banging on the door saying yeah. real killer yeah. and nobody responds. Hmm. I weirdly felt that that could be accurate. Cause I think, you know, obviously if I heard something like that, I, I would hope that I would be jumping, but like, you know, jumping to try and help. But if you hmm. live in a city where you hear a bunch of crazy stuff all the time, I don't know, you know, if you have noisy neighbors, I don't know how much you would kind of react to that. Some people might be, you know, playing a joke or something like that. Um, so just the realism in that was just very, very eerie in how they portrayed that and how obviously he ended up killing her.
0: Yeah, moment. that's a great uh, point because there's when you rewatch the movie, you pick up on a lot more of the commentary that Lar, uh, Var, Lars von Trier is inserting into the movie through a lot of these kind of, Some scenes are so over the top, like the kids getting killed. And then you have a scene like that in the apartment complex with Riley Cano and Matt Dylan even says he sticks his head out the window and he starts screaming. He's just like, no one wants to help. And it's like, that's uh, Lars's uh, opportunity to kind of be like, as a society, we've stopped caring about each other in a lot of ways. And it's like, again, it's to a ridiculous degree where there's even a cop outside at one point. And like when Matt D- when Matt Dillon walks in and he's on the crutches, the cop gives him a ticket. But then when uh, Riley Cano realizes that he wants to hurt her, she runs outside and she's pleading to the cop. And Matt Dillon comes out and he gives this like drunken act of saying like, I have abused this woman's love and trust in me. Like a sob story to the cop. The cop mm-hmm. is just like, okay, yeah, I, I hear you. Ma'am, take him back upstairs. And the cop just drives away and it's like, it's beating us over the head with the fact that like society as a whole has stopped caring about people and it's just played out in this super disturbing and over the top violent way.
1: Very much so. Very much. So. I mean, at least the cop didn't beat the guys in this case, uh, but yeah,
0: that was, he showed some restraint, I think.
1: <laughs> but you know, kind of going after that, what was your thoughts on, you know, his killing of the guy with the full metal jacket bullet mm-hmm. and, eventually going into that freezer where he had you know i I couldn't remember if there was like four or five people tied to a post yeah you know i think he alluded somehow to this being something that the nazis did on the eastern front um what was there any other kind of symbolism or any other things that you kind of saw for that that alluded to it i mean
0: yeah he goes on he goes into like again the film is intercut with Him talking to Verge and then he gives these long winded exposition for all the different things that he's doing, uh, which I'd like I think we should talk about next after this part, just because it's like such a prevalent part of the movie and given the movie's two and a half hours long and he goes on these long kind of diatribes. I think we should uh, comment on next. But other than saying, like, the reason that he's using this is he needs to find an efficient way to kill people now because he's trying to kill so many people at once. Um, it kind of just speaks to him spiraling because like you said earlier, he loses his OCD or he gets over it. The more he starts killing and more frequently. Right. And there are no repercussions the entire movie for anything he does. So mm-hmm. he becomes more and more, um, uh, careless in a lot of ways that like he wants to get caught basically. Like mm-hmm. at one point when, uh, he moves the woman's butt, he almost gets caught by the cop mm-hmm. when he kills that woman that he was on her porch telling her that he was a cop. Uh, at one point he ties her body in the back of the van and drives to his meat locker and her head is just being eviscerated by the pavement all the way there so there's a bloody trail leading from the crime scene all Mm. the way to his meat locker where he's got all these bodies but then as soon as he gets there it starts raining and like it's all washed away so it just shows like Jack is spiraling and he's doing all these things that are more and more elaborate and more and more uh, carelessly that Mm. he doesn't really care but At the same time, there's no repercussions. And I think a way that I interpreted it, and I want to know if you would agree with this or not, uh, is that his carelessness is supposed to be kind of representing or being a metaphor for kind of like white male privilege in a lot of ways. Because you're showing this white guy that is getting away with these despicable crimes. And again, there's no repercussions. Like when he's, um, when the cop shows up, he's talking to the cop and he's just able to talk his way out of it. Like they're like, Oh, there's a lot of break-ins in this neighborhood. And he's like, yeah. And he's just some guy hanging out in a van and he's like what? acting all suspicious and stuff. And the cop isn't even like, Oh, it could be this guy.
1: Well, that the, I think the weirdest part, you know, going back to that, uh, part, the second, uh, second scene that they had, right. Yeah. Um, there was a woman, um, as claiming as a police agent and insurance agent later, mm-hmm. um, he tells the cop, you know, you have something worse on your hands than a burglary. I'm trying to find this woman, and she's... <laughs> he says, like, he talked to her, then he's waiting outside, and then there was a scuffle, and all of a sudden, she's just gone. Yeah. He alludes, I think he says at one point, like, try the doorknob when he's the cop's knocking on the door. Yeah. At that point, again, I think for most people, you're like, all right, can you question him a little bit more? I mean, what? how are we not you know mm-hmm. going to have that discussion a little bit more rather than just walking into the the house and taking a look at where that woman is right. i don't think he ended up even calling backup or anything like that maybe i i missed that but nope. um it was just again it, i think it very much alludes to what you're saying that there is some sort of a privilege for him you know he's such a very odd man mm-hmm. but i think because he looks so harmless you know on the outside that no one really gives him that idea that he could do such horrid things right going back to that that uma thurman scene where she's like you know you're not man enough or you're you know you don't seem you know tough enough to be a serial killer Mm -hmm. i think that's the eeriness of a lot of these serial killers that we see is that they just look like regular guys that you know for for lack of a better term just look odd (laughs) Um, (laughs) i very much agree with that assessment that you put out
0: yeah um I think we have to say like how phenomenal Matt Dillon is in this. I'm not super familiar with his body of work. Like I know he was in the outsiders uh, back in the day, but I'm not super familiar with his work. And this is like one of the best performances, not only of I think uh, two years ago, but Mm -hmm. like this is one of the best performances I think I've seen in a horror movie in the last five years, something like that. Like it's just so phenomenal from start to finish in terms of, his character has so much versatility in terms of each incident. Jack is trying to play out this new identity or find himself in some way. And each performance in each incident is completely different than the one before it or the one after it.
1: Right. I mean, he just Matt Dillon, if, if you've seen some of his interviews, he seems like such a charismatic and nice guy, but when you see him in this movie, again, the, the versatility that he has with this character, He goes from being a complete creep to, you know, trying to be friendly to kids to try and, you know, woo this woman in her apartment and she's, you know, upset and he's doing like this little cute thing with a phone and Mm -hmm. and that little thing. Right. So
0: that fucked me up so badly.
1: (laughs) Again, you see that and you're like, on one hand, all right, obviously both of these people are out of their minds, but like it again, it. Points to I think unfortunately we've all met someone that's a little bit like that that's a little emotionally unstable and you try and be somewhat helpful I don't think that person that was emotionally unstable would ever think that they were going to get killed like that right right <laughs> but um, again it just points to I think the 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 movie is set up in such a way where you obviously hate Matt Dillon. Mm-hmm but you there's certain aspects of his character where you can kind of empathize with him. I think we've all felt, you know, out of place in some way in the world or, you know, that we weren't connecting with people at some point. And so it's just it's very interesting to see his character try and do that and go, you know, be out there a little bit more and get rejected. So I think to an extent we've all felt a little bit of that. But obviously we don't end up taking that and then going to kill 56 people or however many people. Oh, Yeah, no, at least he, not.
0: He has that great line. I mean, speaking to the body count, not that it's super important, but uh, when he's talking to Sybil and he's like, uh, oh, what does he say? He says, oh, it, uh, it's 61. And she goes, a minute ago you just said it was 60 people you killed. And he's like, yeah, and now it's 61 he's just like looking at her like little moments like that dude are so fucking creepy especially considering like you said with the phone she's Mm. upset with him no doubt because he's being a a shithead like he normally is and so he puts a phone in front of her and goes in the other room after and he's like because she said I can't even look at you or something like that and now he's doing this like this cutesy thing with the phone in the other room where he's apologizing for being a shithead and all this stuff and then five minutes later he's gonna do what he does to her and just be fucking the worst. It's mm-hmm. just so it's such a phenomenal range. And even like he said himself that um there was a lot of improvising. Like Lars wanted them to improvise and he even had an expression on set that was something like, uh, remember to keep it messy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Cause they didn't rehearse at all, apparently. They did no rehearsals. And oh, wow. they just kind of experimented on set. Like the part with the donut when mm-hmm. he's trying when he fails to choke that woman to death. And then he tries to like do this mini resuscitation and giving her tea and a donut and all this stuff. Like that was all improvised, which is crazy, which oh. it gives the movie a kind of a griminess to it, like an unexpected nature to it. That almost makes it feel more real than it actually is mm-hmm. in a way I thought.
1: No, I mean, I agree. I, you know, again, when you go back and I, I think we touched on a little bit earlier, he, 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 Tries to be humanized in certain aspects because he wants, you know. I think the end goal for him, he wants to somewhat be normal. It's just whatever that is inside him that's, you know, making him want to kill is obviously still very, ever prevalent there. Uh, But when he walks in, and he, again, smiles at her and uh, in the third scene um, in that apartment complex. Mm-hmm. And, and she goes, I can't look at you. And that's why she starts kind of crying. Again, I'm just... It, it, the, the director puts these guys in such a very unique situation just with that dialogue to give him so much room to kind of go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... Where was there ever a point that you kind of you saw this and you thought that this was based on some sort of a serial killer, Um, or was this all just kind of from from Lars?
0: Not really, just because it's so over the top Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, and I think especially again on a real like I I feel fortunate that I got to rewatch this after having a long period of time to digest it Mm -hmm. and just picking apart all of the little commentaries and things like that. Like, like some of the things you've been mentioning, Jack is o- all the incidents. It's only five incidences that he's recounting to verge and right. he's killed 61 people or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's the victim in everything though.
1: Yeah. And
0: verge even calls him out on it at one point, And he's just like, aren't you noticing that all of the people that are being, that are belittling you are like women. And he's <laughs> just, and Jack is just like so unprepared for somebody to call him on his bullshit. And this is the only person that's ever called him on his bullshit. And, It's interesting that that is the only consequence in the entire movie is that like Verge calls him out on it and he doesn't know how to respond to that other than being like defensive. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of it, I don't don't even really view it as being like a movie that sets out to be this realistic portrayal of serial killers. It's more so just this super violent, over-the-top extrapolation of all of these different concepts that uh, Lars wants to broach. But Mm -hmm. he's broaching it in this very uncon uh, unconventional manner that i think really lends something to it that mm-hmm. if he was approaching these different topics like in just a drama i don't think it would be nearly as effective just because it might be somewhat played out
1: that's fair yeah i mean i would hope um you know reality is stranger than fiction fiction or i forget mm-hmm. how that phrase goes but um you know i I'm always just, I've always been fascinated by different serial killers. So when I was watching, I was trying to see if he was kind of, like you said, alluding to anything that could resemble something. Um, but it was just so over the top throughout. Um, again, you know, he's driving a body, you know, God knows how many miles through the streets,
0: yeah.
1: just tagged behind him. How many red lights did he hit? Yeah. Imagine just being a car, right? Pull up next to him and then you just see it drive off. You know, you're trying to pull off onto a highway and you see a body fucking rolling by you. Like, yeah. just, You know, there was, there were so many things that I thought of when I was watching it or like, um, there's one kind of montage where he's outside. It looks like a motel and he's carrying bodies on his shoulder.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: You know, um, when he kills, uh, I think that was the woman, the the third or fourth one, um, where he kind of kills a woman and then he sets her up with a gentleman that he killed as well. And he does like a little photo shoot with him.
0: Oh, So, yeah. So it's a woman that isn't, she's not given her own incident. It's just a woman that he was dating that he kills. And then he takes her body. He takes pictures of the bodies at every single crime scene. And so he kills her, but then he's not happy with the photographs that he took of her. And so on the way driving back to her apartment to restage her body, he runs over a woman on the way to the apartment Mm -hmm. because it shows like he's still, he's spiraling to the point that like he's just killing people that he sees on the road now. And then he starts like framing their bodies up because again, it's one of his little mini dissertations where he talks about like, Oh, I learned very quickly that if you freeze the bodies and they go into rigor mortis, you can position them better and all these things. And it's like so over the top and fucked up. But at the same time, it's comical because He's carrying these bodies back and forth like five times and nobody's noticing anything.
1: Right. Again, you'd think someone would just be looking out, oh, you know, the moon's really bright tonight and then you just see a guy walking around with a body, you'd say something. I mean again there's I think it alludes to a little bit again of how you know, maybe I might be way off in the boonies on this, but, like, how society, even though we live, you know, basically on top of each other, mm-hmm. how everyone's so disconnected from things that are going on around them yeah. that you would be able to see that, you know? Um, going to the the scene where, um, you know, he basically has, like, he, he wants to kill those gentlemen that are attached to the, the pole in the freezer, yeah. right, in the crater? yeah. And, and he wants to kill them with a full metal jacket bullet, and then that army, or the, you know, the former uh, soldier kind of mentions that's not a full metal jacket, and he freaks out. <laughs> that's just, it's that's such a weird, yeah, like, again, you know, he obviously has OCD, so to a point, I kind of get where he's coming from, but you, you feel like if you have a bullet, you might as well just kill them. Why would you go out of your way to, to get potentially caught up in something mm-hmm. else after that?
0: Right. And at the end of the day, even if it didn't work, he could still kill them anyways. Like, again, it's him taking these massive leaps that are massive risks rather that he doesn't need to take. But he's like, why the fuck wouldn't I? Nobody I've killed 61 people and nobody's come close to catching me. Mm-hmm. But uh, to go back to what we had mentioned earlier, what did you think about the narration of and the conversations between Jack and Verge when Jack is giving these basically like mini dissertations about all these different like lectures about like architecture. He goes off on a rant about wine. He goes off on this rant about uh, music and musicians and like the street lamp shadowy metaphor. What did you think of all that?
1: I mean, you know, first, honestly, when I watched it the first time, I kind of thought a little bit about that movie identity And that like, we're not understanding fully what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So there might be a layer on top of what we're seeing that kind of might make the movie as a whole. So at first I really genuinely thought that this guy is, I mean, obviously he's crazy, but he has like another personality that he's talking to Mm -hmm. and he's walking through all these kills and trying to kind of give himself a reasoning of why he's doing it. Um, and that reinforces his own kind of self worth, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I, it was strangely fascinating because, again, you go through, like, when he's talking about building his home mm-hmm. and that montage, and he's talking about, like, what it would mean to him, and then it cuts to him, like, uh, I think it was, like, uh, in between that, he's building, like, a paper house, and he yeah. just starts smashing it with both <laughs> hands and, monkey, yeah. and like, Again, you're just, like, at the end of the day, even though he's obviously crazy and he obviously has these, like, You know, he's a grown man, but as a, just as a person, as maturity, he's a child. Yeah. You know how to handle anything that's not completely perfect in that sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so initially on my first watch, I hated those sequences just because I was like, this is detracting way too much from the narrative that they're telling on a rewatch. though, it really stands as an example of his narcissism of him Mm -hmm. trying to flex his brain and all of his intellect even though he can't apply that intellect, he still has intellect. So he his way of shining basically is just to spew that intellect unfiltered at people. And I think I respected the fatigue that comes with those because some of those scenes go on for like five minutes, five yeah. or seven minutes at a time. I respect the fatigue that those can have. And I still felt the fatigue on some of them, especially when he starts going on this rant about the wine and the process between the wine and avoiding rot and all these things because it shows like he's so up his own ass that he's going to talk to verge at nauseum without giving verge a moment to butt in sometimes mm-hmm. on just these random topics. And he controls the show in a lot right. of ways. Yeah. It's again,
1: it, there's so many things that you can take from those, uh, those moments. And I think again, you know, even watching it twice, I probably missed certain different nuances that were going on or certain little kind of, you know, Easter eggs that might've, you know, kind of giving me a bigger glimpse of what was actually going on throughout that movie. Mm -hmm. What was your, what were your thoughts at the end where, um, you know, basically he's in that, that refrigerated scene and he drops into, you know, I didn't really understand. It's basically
0: he's dropping into hell. Okay. So, yeah. So at the end when he is about to kill all those guys, now he's got his full metal jacket bullet, Mm -hmm. he's become so careless that he's committed a double murder essentially. And he drives the police car all the way to his meat locker and he leaves the sirens on. So the cops find his meat locker. Mm -hmm. And just as he's about to break in to or sorry, as the as the police are about to break in, Mm -hmm. he finally opens up that back freezer door that he couldn't get into. And Verge is in there and he's just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I'm completely crazy now. I'm seeing people. Mm -hmm. And so Verge actually talks him into realizing you can make your perfect your dream house now. And he's like, think about the materials which then he ends up building a house out of all the corpses of the people that he's killed, which is so ludicrous and hilarious <laughs> that like, I couldn't not laugh at it. Cause it's so over the top and it just yeah. shows like, he's even a failure building houses. He's got to build a house out of fucking corpses. And it's yeah. just like, it's so ridiculous. But then verge drops through the floor basically. And they drop into hell together. And it's this, what is it? A 20 minute journey of walking him through hell and mm-hmm. having him realize like he sees his childhood and he sees all the faces of the people he's killed um that scene in general though i think is probably the weakest part of the movie for me
1: 100% agree that's
0: a sequence that i think could have had the same impact had it been 5 minutes yep like it, i i for sure did not think it needed to be spelled out so explicitly for us because they show like the different layers of hell where they're going through and there's Uh, these massive ladders that they're climbing down and then they're wading through the water. And then at one point they actually literally come to a bridge that's been broken in half. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you can either come with me and go to hell or you can try to climb along the rocks to -hmm. go back to living essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think if they had returned to the opening scene where again, it was all black and you can just hear them talking in the water. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been much more effective in retaining the same idea that it's like he's very clearly going on a journey somewhere and you assume it's hell but right. there's an ambiguity
1: there that i think complements the movie overall mm-hmm. so was that like dante's inferno then so what it uh, was that nine rings of hell or nine stages of hell
0: yeah that so that's my interpretation of it i interpret verge as being the ferryman basically in that he at the very beginning of the movie he's talking to jack and he's just like i've made this journey many times Of people don't expect to tell me anything i haven't heard before basically mm-hmm. and so that's me interpreting him as he's the ferryman and he's basically seeing jack to hell
1: mm-hmm. so let me ask you this then is this entire movie then from the perspective of verge and how he's watching all this happen because if you like Towards the end, I think uh, right before that refrigerator scene, Verge says, "I've been with you this whole time." and there's a little like montage where he's at the first death when he hits Uma Thurman. I mean he's just somehow a part of each of those. So is this all like, do you think it's from his perspective on how this guy goes from you know being kind of a wuss to becoming a serial killer and then Verges kind of bring him into hell essentially?
0: I think it's just finally he's had some consequences for what's happening. In a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, like, Verge, the film begins at the end of the movie, basically, because he's talking to Verge. And Mm -hmm. then it's him having to explain to Verge his life, basically, and Mm -hmm. essentially just realizing, like, his life is meaningless. Because then we see at the end of the movie when he he decides not to go with Verge, and he tries Mm -hmm. to climb across the rocks to go back to Earth, essentially. And... Even that he fucks up. He like, he's so up his own ass. He's like, nobody's ever done this, but why couldn't I do it? And it's just like, no motherfucker, you can't do that. Like you're not going to be able to do that. Climb across the rocks. And then he falls into the fiery pits of hell, which I assume means he suffers for all eternity. Like he probably should, or he definitely should. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I would just, I've still, even on a rewatch, that whole last sequence is super underwhelming and kind of by that point, it's, we're two hours and 10 minutes into the movie. Like the fatigue still sets in for me, at least in that part. How about you?
1: I, I think that, you know, if this movie was about one hour and 50 minutes, it would have been more powerful than, than it being two hours and what, 25 minutes or something like that. Um, you know, sans the credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I liked where the director's idea was going. I just think, again, you, you said it perfectly. You get, after two hours, you get a certain to- so- sort of kind of movie fatigue that it's like, all right, let's wrap this up. You know, we, we got it. He's killed a bunch of people. He's not really a good guy. Let's kind of put a, you know, a bow on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's where Lars kind of messed up a little bit and kind of elongating this a little bit too much just to make sure that he got whatever message he was trying to get across.
0: Yeah. So originally this movie was actually supposed to be developed as a, it was either eight or 10 part miniseries. Um, and I think they definitely made the right choice in making it a film instead of that. Yes. I don't, I think at this, this is a movie that again, it requires so much time to gestate basically and just like wrap your mind around all the things. And you really do to get a greater appreciation for it. You have to be able to look past the violence yeah, because the violence in a certain extent is used for, It's dark, but it is used for comedic effect in a lot of ways. Um, And I think that if this was spaced out, it would just be way too much of the same thing kind of in a way. Um, My question to you is, does this movie work nearly as well without Matt Dillon? Is this more Lars's movie or is this more Matt Dillon's
1: movie?
0: In terms of like apex performances.
1: I think that the idea is great, but I don't think... I think every movie that is great has to have a performance that's outstanding from its main character. And I don't know if, if Matt won any kind of awards for this, um, but if he didn't, I mean, that's just a travesty on its own, right? Because he was, again, he's so phenomenal in this where there are moments where you can, as weirdly as it sounds, empathize with him. Mm-hmm. But then again, you, you hate him. So it's just such a weird roller coaster of a relationship that you have with the main character and trying to see, again, the pathway that he goes from being just this random, you know, kind of loner kind of a guy that picks up a woman to, in theory, try and help her on the side of a road mm-hmm. to, you know, tying up six guys in a, in a freezer and trying to shoot them all in the head to kill them with one <laughs> bullet. So it's, it's just a very weird path for him.
0: So he was nominated for two awards for the house of Jack built, uh, yeah. the Robert award for best actor in a leading role and the Bo Dill award. These are two awards that I've never heard of. Um, Oh, they're both Danish Academy, uh, film awards.
1: Surprised you don't know they, about the Cause award. they fil- yeah,
0: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I should have done my, my, uh, my film award research, but, uh, I mean, for me at least, This is the first uh, Lars von Trier film that I've seen. I haven't seen his other films, even though I've heard that they're um, fairly infamous in terms of their quality, or not quality, rather their graphic content and whatnot, and just the lengths, the extremes that he goes to to tell these wholly original stories, but they go to some pretty dark places pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of the movie, like you said, and I think that he has a very unique way of exploring topics that have basically been beaten to death. Like there's nothing new. There's no new ground to cover. It's all about the way in which you cover that ground. Right. And I think this idea is really a strong one Mm
1: -hmm. at
0: the same time though. I can't imagine enjoying this movie as much as I did. If Matt Dillon wasn't in it, given how stunning his performances and the versatility that he's able to uh, approach each of the incidents with basically, and just, it's such an uncomfortable movie to watch. And it's largely in a film also where the director's encouraging people to like keep it messy, like he says, and to improvise and no rehearsals. Like that's an incredible amount of responsibility. And it gives a lot more ownership to the actors, I think, in terms of just like taking this core idea, but then really making it your own. And it's an instance where if it wasn't Matt Dillon, who's to say that somebody would be able to approach it and have the same result in improvising like he did.
1: No, 100%. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things where you're happy that you we don't have to play that guessing game. You know, it's the same thing of like, you know, I can't imagine Breaking Bad without Brian Cranston, right? Um, I'm sure it would be a great series, but it mm-hmm. still wouldn't have the same kind of oomph that it has with him involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's just what you get when you hire a world-class actor like that. Um, you know, I'm sure he's, I think he's been in mostly indies, um, in the last couple of years, uh, yeah. From my understanding, I mean, he's bounced between you know serious kind of films and indie films in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, again, his performance just so outstanding in this that um, you know I think even if the whatever issues the movie could have lacked, I think he more than made up for for it with his acting skills.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, any any closing thoughts on this? Because this is this is a hell of a movie to pick. And I was happy that you did because it's one of those movies that in rewatching it, like I was dying to have a conversation about it, but it's one of those things where it's not an easy movie to recommend. Yeah. (laughs) Just because especially on a first viewing, like I'm so happy you watched it a second time because on a first viewing, the only thing you can talk about is the violence. Like we could have talked about how horrific the scene with him killing the kids was in great detail, but it's like, it's not, it's kind of missing the greater point exactly and it's obviously the violence that's depicted is horrific but at the same time like there's more to it than just showing that for the sake of showing it right a lot of ways and i think i had a greater appreciation for that uh on a rewatch and i'm glad you did too
1: no 100 percent. i mean again i think you know going through it a second time there are certain things that you pick up on that you just again you wouldn't be able to comprehend it, you know, when you're in the midst of watching all these kind of horrifying scenes. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that really kind of struck to me was when there was like a little bit of a montage. uh, I think it was a little bit towards the end of the movie where he's looking at the house that he was trying to build. And it's clearly not anywhere near done. I think he just has like somewhat of the foundation in place, but he doesn't have walls or anything like that. And I think to juxtapose that with the house that Jack built at the end with the bodies, Mm -hmm. there's just a weird kind of a satisfaction in the way that they end that. Um, Again, he did end up building a house for himself. It's just obviously not the one that we ever would have thought that would happen in that sense.
0: Yeah. And I love that that really signifies and sends home the point that like, he can't even build a house and he's supposed to be an architect. And it's like, Killing is the only thing that he's good at. And that's like the easiest thing. You, I mean, it's easy in the sense that like anybody could do it, but nobody does do it because it's ins- like, obviously it's insane. You would never do that. And so for his character to fail at everything, but killing people. And then that trans translates even to like him, be him becoming quote unquote, a successful architect. Finally with using people as a material just kind of drills home. the The fact that like, he's a fucking clown. Like he can't do anything right. He's such a failure at everything that he succeeds at being a failure, which I guess for him is a success, but for the rest of us, it's just, uh, it is what it is.
1: Very weird. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest takeaway from, from this that our listeners can get, um, is that you said that killing is easy, uh, right there. So
0: yeah, that's going to be the, uh, the iTunes review one star. <laughs> Host Jay Krieger says killing is easy.
1: Not gonna be going to any barbecues for you anytime. Soon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're on, you're on my my good list though, so you're good.
1: It's not comforting, but all right. I yeah. appreciate <laughs>
0: it. Interpret that how you will. But uh, hey, man, I was thrilled to have you on again. It's always a good time uh, linking up with you and talking movies. So I appreciate you coming on.
1: No, of course, like I said, I'm I'm always a, a big fan of all your guys' work. So you know, anytime that I can come on and, and chat with you about this kind of stuff, it's it's my pleasure, man. Anytime you got an open invitation, man. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another
0: episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.